Hello, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. We are your hosts. I am the Boa Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. Bay and I are so stoked to bring you this season that talks all about the science behind love, sex, and relationships. Everything from your brain on love to why we obsess over our favorite television characters to how science and tech are actually changing our relationships with other people. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Lucy Brown about the science of romantic love. And then later on, we are going to actually talk to an actual couple about their actual relationship story, actually. What do you feel when you're in love? Mm. Like, what do you think is going on within you? The sparks and the butterflies and all that jazz. I feel like love is genuinely like your brain on drugs. <laughs> it's it's like, it's weirdly, it's addicting. You're like addicted to that person. You're addicted to the way, the way that they make you feel emotionally, mentally, physically. I feel like your confidence goes up. You know, I feel like I'm a whole new, whole new lady when I walk around in love because it's like, ooh, someone loves me. I mean, okay, in theory, this person loves me back, right? Is that what you're, okay, great. I should have specified. Hopefully, right? Yeah. <laughs> Am I just pining of someone from afar? Um, that happens too. Yeah, I feel like being in love is, I mean, I don't know the science behind this. I missed a lot of school as a kid, but I imagine that your brain when you're in love is lit up, yeah. right? Yeah. How about well, you, Bay? I know gas is involved, so you might belch a couple times, your stomach might turn, mm -hmm. you don't know what's going on. I get certainly really, really energized. Mm -hmm. um, I have a partner and I still find myself being really, really intrigued and excited to do things, like an activity, like, you know, oh, do you want to go to the movies? Like we were talking about that movie, mm -hmm. you know, I won't say the name. But <laughs> But Top going secret. out to the movies and go, going to dinner, like, I, I get excited, certainly. So I get charged, um, kind of like I had a Red Bull or something. Yo. Yeah. yeah, right. And you should. Yeah, you should, if you're in love, still be stoked to be like, you want to just go walk around the mall? You want to go sit at the dog park and look at those dogs? Hell yeah, I do. For sure. Because I love you. Absolutely. <laughs> Our first guest is Dr. Lucy Brown. Dr. Lucy Brown knows all about what's really going on when we experience romantic love. Let's bring on Dr. Lucy Brown now. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. Do you mind just introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about where you are, what you do? I'm a neuroscientist and I've been so curious about the brain. You know, my whole career, a neuroscientist who has looked at over a hundred brain scans of people in love at different stages of love. I've done that at Einstein College of Medicine, where I'm a clinical professor in neurology. Now, mainly what I do is write about these studies. Can you explain some of the differences between when it comes to love, the intangibles and the concrete science behind romantic love? You know, I think we all have this feeling that romance, especially when we first fall in love, it's magic. Hey, <laughs> where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Many of us don't have the words for it, but poets do. So we often look to the poets <laughs> you know, like Shakespeare for words for this. What's interesting is science can quantify this in several different ways. And first, just behaviorally, people, when they're near the person they're newly in love with, maybe their voice trembles a little bit. The palms can get sweaty. Probably the most important measure, though, of romantic love is how often you think about the other person during the day and how you orient your life toward that other person. We even have a questionnaire called the Passionate Love Scale. 
And one of the most important questions there is, how often do you have these intrusive thoughts? Mm. So this is one of the ways that science, it's a behavioral way. But then the brain imaging studies were fascinating because they told us that the parts of the brain that are active in everybody who's in love are at the reflex level, you know, so no wonder we have a hard time verbalizing or it feels like it comes from nowhere. Can you talk to us about how you actually look into someone's brain and how does a, I guess, air quotes, normal brain look? We use brain imaging technology called functional magnetic resonance imaging. You may have, and your listeners, many of your listeners may have had an MRI as we call it, mm -hmm. and we're able to measure blood flow changes. So that's like changing in energy demands, just like you have in your muscles wow. when you're using them a lot. So parts of the brain that are very active, when people are looking at a picture of their romantic partner compared to a picture of an acquaintance. So we compared those two activation levels in the brain within the same person. What does the in love brain look like physically? How would you describe that? Physically, it's not going to look any different from when you're in in love or out of love. There's no physical difference. It's a functional difference. And so what we're doing when we're in love is we're activating these natural systems that have been there all along, but we're going to activate them even more when we're in love. I want to shift our focus to you and your story just a second. You know, mm -hmm. what experiences did you have personally that led you to taking on romance as a focus? Mm -hmm. At first, the idea to study romantic love, when it was first brought up to me, I thought, mm, I'm not sure we can do that. You know, how do you really define romantic love? This was, you know, back in 1995 or so when Helen Fisher first asked me if I'd study romantic love with her. I had always been interested in euphoria, though. What made us feel good? Other people were studying depression and drug addiction. And yes, that's all clinically relevant and important. But I was really interested in the opposite of that. Yeah. You know, let's find out something about the good, healthy, euphoric stages of life. And and as soon as I found out that there was something called the passionate love scale or that we could put a number on something like romantic love, I said, OK, I'm willing to try. Also, of course, romance is an interesting thing. I certainly, before I started these studies, always just took it for granted. This isn't something to just take for granted and say, oh, this happens. This is something that we should understand. So that's what got me into it. So let's say you're studying someone who is freshly in love, right? They are just falling in love. They are in the height of it. Have you been able to study those same people still in love with the same person, but years into their relationship, their marriage? Have you seen a difference? We haven't looked at the same person over time, but we've looked at one group in the early stage and another group that had been married for 10 or 20 years. But we did look at people who said they were still in love with their romantic partner. There are people out there who say that even after 10 years of marriage, it's just like the first six months. But because it changes, it's a Attachment. The biggest thing that changes in the brain is we get the activation still in that reward system that's at the reflex level, but also activation in parts of the brain that have to do with attachment and more of this long-term caring and more of the hormones like vasopressin and oxytocin mm -hmm. and just more cognitive information and more memories. There is more kind of thought that goes into it. There is less obsession after long 
long term, you can go to work as well as be in love when you're yeah. (laughs) years later, you can do other things. (laughs) That's funny you say that. It does feel when you're first falling in love, it does feel impossible to go to work, go to the grocery store. It feels like you can't do anything other than want to talk to that person. (laughs) What are those stages of romance and love and those intense feelings? Yeah, are there terms for those scientifically? Almost as many researchers as there are for this would come up with different stages. Mm. But there's certainly the early stage intense romantic love. Everybody agrees on that. Then how long that lasts? Many different estimates, anything from six months to 10 years. Mm. (laughs) There is, though, for sure, a switch from that obsession to more attachment. It's calmer. The two big stages are the early stage when there's some anxiety, a fair amount of anxiety often, as a matter of fact. Mm. And then the later stage when there's much less anxiety, it's a warmer, safer feeling. So are there any connections that you've found or anyone has found in science between feelings of love and biological things like cognitive ability, memory, long-term brain or physical health? Like, is it biologically good for a person to be in love? There are no brain studies on this, but there are plenty of psychologists who have studied this and looked at it. And indeed, it seems that people who have a partner do better health-wise. And there's some evidence that they even live a little bit longer. It's probably part of this activation of the reward system. But of course, you know, just having someone else around means there's someone else watching to see, you know, ask you, how are you feeling? Should you go to the doctor? When there's someone around to just walk down the street with you to protect you, maybe help Mm. you if you're about to fall. I mean, those kinds of things, of course, are going to be part of a relationship and part of the reason that you're going to do better and thrive more. That makes me think of those stories you hear of elderly married couples who have been married forever and ever. And when one of them passes away, sometimes the other one does within the next year or two. Um, And I never thought, I always thought of it as like, you know, you're dying from a broken heart, but you're so right about also the logistics of having another person to keep you safe and keep you accountable. That's so interesting. You co-created the website, The Anatomy of Love, which Bay and I were looking at right before we hopped on here. And can you tell us about the different aspects of this website, why you created it? I know you said you had partnered with someone. I partnered with Helen Fisher, Mm -hmm. who's an anthropologist, and she had studied love for many years before I began studies with her. And Art Aaron, who's a psychologist. So the three of us, it was a great collaboration. We really wanted people to be able to look up the results of these studies because our motto for the website is know thy brain. Okay. (laughs) Know thyself. Because once you get to learn about these studies of the brain, you get to learn about yourself and know thy partner. We created this website using language that is oriented very much toward the person who's a little curious about science, but not a scientist. When you talk about people who know nothing about science, but are very curious, that is a comedian and a rapper. And we just are so excited to be talking to people like you. This is amazing. Yeah. Dr. Brown, how do you see the future of this study of of romance and love? For the future, I mean, the kinds of questions 
questions that I would love to see answered. One big question out there still is, why do we fall in love with the person we fall in love with? What is it about that person that we find so attractive? Some people have tried this, but still has a lot of work to be done. There's also, why do people stay in relationships that aren't so loving? And people do often stay in destructive relationships, and it would be good to know more about that. If we know more about the brain systems, then we might know more about where to focus therapeutically. But also something I'm especially interested in is how meditation also is kind of like a long-term love relationship and how we can become attached to the act of sitting and meditating and how therapeutic that can be. I mean, given how much progress has been able to be made in the topic of romantic love since, you know, you said you started in about 1995, right? I'm excited to hear in a couple of years how far you come with this study of meditation. That's so exciting. Yeah, and I love to sit down. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. Well, Dr. Lucy Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us. This was super enlightening. It was really, really, really dope. It's thank you. It's good to know that it's actually good for you to be in love. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. You both had great questions. Yeah, oh, keep going. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you so much, Dr. Lucy Brown. So much going on physically in the body, when we are in love. What we feel is actually produced by biological processes. That's freaky. That is wild, yeah. As you know, this is a science podcast. But really what each topic relates back to is people navigating relationships of all sorts, right? So for our final segment, we are going to meet with an actual couple for this segment that we call Love Actually, colon, the Lucy and Tamar story. Lucy and Tamar, welcome to So Curious. How are you guys? We're good. We're having a pretty cozy day. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. <laughs> just relaxing outside. Can y'all just tell me a little bit where you're from, how old you are, where you met, whatever you're comfortable sharing? I'm from Hastings and Hudson which is right outside the city. Tamar's from San Francisco. We met two years ago, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm 22, she's 25. How did you meet, given that we have a West Coaster and a New Yorker? Well, Tamar goes to Wesleyan in Connecticut. Her dad lives in Riverdale, which is only about 20 minutes from Hastings. We originally met because she dated someone I went to high school with. So we were just aware of each other. And then over quarantine, I was just like, do you want to hang out? She's a musician. She played a show at my school. And I mean, my impression of her was always, wow, she's so cool, you know, um, <laughs> I really like her. She's probably out of my league. Well, our first solo hangout, we kind of knew nothing about each other. And we uh, just spent the whole day talking. And my impression from that was that she's like a really thoughtful person, really good listener, similar interests. I mean, I also thought you were really cool. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, she's so cool. <laughs> And then a big thing for both of us is like we, we both have a really huge love for music. So it was important to share that. Yeah, and the first time we hung out, we actually ended up recording. Yeah, we were a song. We recorded together. a song. Um, no at way. Like, at like four. Wow, like blackout drunk. What has been the most rewarding part of the relationship and what has been the most challenging? I have a couple answers to this. One being like this is my first queer relationship. And for me that's been super rewarding and different and kind of opened up possibilities that I didn't really think were like possible in a partnership. I think for both of us our first kind of experience with like a healthy 
relationship and realizing like I can kind of break out of these patterns from childhood that I witnessed, you know, certain traumas, like super rewarding to just know I can like rise above that and like create something new for myself with this person who I, you know, love so much. On the other side of that is like the challenges have definitely been all these, you know, toxic patterns that we have kind of stored inside us that come out once we're in relationship. Sometimes we don't even realize they're there until we're in a deep partnership with someone. So that's definitely been a challenge. And the reason why we bring up our childhood so much, we had a very similar upbringing of like neglectful parents. That's taken like a huge toll on both of us. And we're both actively trying to not replicate that. Individually, what do you love most about the other one? Tamar has a deep rejection of fakeness and it pushes me to be like more real too so I think her devotion to truly wanting me to be me us having individual identities and then coming together similarly I feel like my answer is something that makes me a better person which is I just feel like Lucy greets every experience in her life with how can I bring the most compassion into this how can I be loving in this situation which I just find so inspiring I feel like I've never met someone who is so much like that in my life (laughs) really (laughs) (laughs) what's a story that defines your relationship well so I kind of touched on how I was blackout drunk the first time we hung out Um, And I don't really drink alcohol, like, ever, so that's kind of why this happened. But basically, we were just drinking a lot, we were making music, having so much fun, but then I ended up, like, getting so sick, like, almost on the verge of alcohol poisoning. I was like... Disclaimer, alcohol is not a part of our relationship at all. (laughs) This was just, yeah, it was just, like, day one. Yeah, it's like, we were strangers, we never hung out, and then suddenly I have alcohol poisoning, and just, like... The way she was so non-judgmental, the way I felt so comfortable with her, she just like completely just like took care of me. And I remember thinking like, why are you being so nice to me? Like, why do I feel so comfortable with you? I'm literally on the verge of like dying right now, but you're just like there. I don't know, I'm curious from your perspective, like how that was for you. It was much more chiller. I was just like, oh my God, you're throwing up. She she was throwing up for like probably like five hours. And um. (laughs) I just went into, like, go action mode. Yeah. Like, okay, everything's going to be fine. This will pass. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel like it's just that place of, like, ultimate, like, comfort and non-judgment between us. And that was, like, your lowest low. Mm -hmm. Like, you were just so sick and ill Mm -hmm. in a house you've never been in Mm -hmm. and a person you've never really hung out with. Yeah. And we had a great time. Yeah, it was still, like, (laughs) I left that hangout being, like, okay, like, that was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to pick specific stories though what's coming to mind for me is just there's something about us being a quarantine relationship is specific to our personalities because we both love nature we both love taking things slow Mm -hmm. we love like diving into a conversation we love laying in bed and watching tv yeah yeah and all of those activities take time, and all of those activities just require two people talking, which is exactly what quarantine was. So mm. all of my stories would be related to us just sitting outside, talking. Oh, Lucy and Tamara, thank you guys so much. You, you're you a really adorable couple, honestly. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> being yeah. here. Seriously, it's, it's obnoxious. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much to Lucy and Tamar and Dr. Brown for being on this episode. Next week, we are hosting a roundtable discussion on medical health access. 
which is particularly relevant right now. We are really interested in this problem of why people, particularly of different uh, sexual orientations and different gender uh, preferences, have such a difficult time accessing care. This and more on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening. I'm the Bull Bay, and you can just call me Bay. Yeah, and I'm Kirsten Michelle Sips. I don't know if that's how, how my last Sills. name is. <laughs> you don't know how to say your own last name. Nah. You should work on it. All right, we tricked you. I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the Bull Bay. <laughs> Over. And out. So Curious is presented by the Franklin Institute. Special thanks to Franklin Institute producers, Joy Matafusco and Dr. Jayatri Das. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. The managing producer is Emily Cherish. The producer is Liliana Green. The lead audio engineer and editor is Christian Cederland. The editors are Lauren DeLuca and Justin Berger. The science writer is Kira Vayette, and the graphic designer is Emma Sager. 